0: When we add diversity, we can get a tap root and lateral roots and all kinds of root systems. Now we can explore larger areas of soil. So we find we can become far more water and nutrient efficient, which then, you know, turns into we get better organic matter growth, um, infiltration, soil structure. And then on a production side of things, uh, when we graze these multi-species with animals, We're finding animal performance in live weight gains, getting back into calf or lamb or whatever conception, animal health issues, temperament, they all flow on positive effects from that.
1: The Biological Farming Roundtable podcast helps farmers explore innovative, low input, regenerative and profitable farming systems. The Biological Farming Roundtable is sponsored by Nutrisoil, an award-winning biological liquid fertiliser made from a big worm farm. Nutrisol's purpose is to empower farmers to produce life-enriching food. Welcome, everybody, to our 27th episode of the Biological Farming Roundtable podcast. Today, I have with me two fabulous men who are experts in the field of plant diversity. My first introduction is Grant Sims. Some of you would know Grant as a previous president of Vic till a Broadacre Farmer, 2015 Coles Farmer of the Year, and now Director of Seed Company Down Under Covers with his wife and family, Naomi. So, well, wife Naomi and family. So, welcome, Grant.
0: Thanks, Nicola. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Awesome. My second introduction is to Simon Mattson, Nuffield Scholar in Plant Diversity, who has travelled the world researching the practices farmers use in utilising plant diversity in their farming system previous came farmer, now orchardist, as well as consultant for Soil Land Food. Welcome, Simon.
2: Thanks, Nicola. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Wonderful. I'm really excited to get the two of you experts together here today to workshop how farmers can strategically use multi-species cover crops to increase soil health and reduce synthetic inputs. So, Grant, I'll start with you, just the basics. Why use multi-species cover crops?
0: Well, we use them for a number of reasons, but um, one being adding diversity. Um, We've found them that, you know, if you're planting a monoculture like wheat, you know, what you see above the ground is the same below the ground so that, you know, the same root system below the ground means they're kind of exploring just that one area of soil for nutrients and moisture at at the same time, you know, throughout their growth cycle. But, When we had diversity, we can get a tap root and lateral roots and all kinds of root systems. Now we can explore larger areas of soil. So we find we we can become far more water and nutrient efficient, which then, you know, turns into we get better organic matter growth, um, infiltration, soil structure. And then on a production side of things, uh, when we graze these multi-species with animals, we're finding animal performance in live weight gains, getting back into uh, calf or lamb, or whatever conception, animal health issues, temperament, they all are flow on positive effects from that. So, yeah, lots of like go on and on and on. There's lots of benefits um, when we add diversity.
1: Yeah, I'm going to dive into some of those later on. I'm just going for the broad questions now. Simon, there's different plant groups and cool and warm seasons. Do you want to just give us a quick rundown of them?
2: Okay. So, I'll just give a little response to to Grant's piece. Um, certainly uh, I totally agree with everything Grant said and my Nuffield scholarship enabled me to travel the globe to uh, research this topic and out of that I certainly came home totally convinced that plant diversity was by far uh, the single most important thing that I could do in my system to try and and enhance uh, biological function. Uh, I guess at the end of the day, as farmers, we've got to remember there are four things that we all get for free. We get sunlight, rainfall, carbon and nitrogen from the atmosphere, and we all get them for free. And it doesn't matter what our enterprise is, how big or how small, we all get those things for free. And it's up to us as farmers to make the most of those things to try and get productive outcomes. And it's plant diversity that gives you the greatest power as a farmer to harness all of those four things. Hmm. So without a doubt, plant diversity is critical, regardless of your enterprise and regardless of your scale. And there are windows of opportunity to introduce plant diversity into any enterprise. You just have to look for those windows and then try and apply it in your environment. So that gets back to this whole thing about cool season, warm season. Obviously, it varies in in different environments. But for me in North Queensland, for instance, uh, a lot of traditional and conventional thought processes would not, for instance, recommend... Uh, C3 plants or temperate plants in my part of the world because I'm in the tropics however I have found that most of these C3 plants that I've tried grow quite successfully here during the winter and or our so-called winter period which is more like a summer in um, southern Victoria so to speak So, we can grow these plant species at a certain time of the year, and that's one of my my windows, for instance, where I can introduce a plant species that's not normally grown in this part of the world and will certainly enhance biological function and has enhanced biological function. And I I can test that these days with modern testing things like um, um, DNA, and we've done some DNA analysis on on various. Uh, plant species and biologies that we had on the cane farm and established that we had actually uh, increased numbers of different kinds of biology that like those temperate species here in the tropics.
1: Yeah, again, there's just so much in that, isn't there? And I'll keep asking those questions. So you've mentioned there's cool and warm season. Grant, what about the different plant groups?
0: Well, there's a number of Families, I had a list here from um, Dr. Christine Jones. There's there's quite a few, but the like the five sort of plant groups that they talk about uh, more commonly is like the cereals, grasses, your legumes, brassicas, and achenopod things like that. So, um, and all you know, warm and cool seasons. So, if we can get ideally four of those or more, the more the merrier groups of families, and then we've found if we can have you know eight or more species in, within you know those four families going you know we can get some really cool stuff happening that quorum sensing and that that sharing of um, you know minerals and nutrients and things like that throughout the their, their root networks
1: do you want to tell us what shenopods are
0: yeah they're um, they're in like there's a family there's spinach and quinoa and things like that we've found out of that the shenopod component the white quinoa being, probably the most economically and the, and the best one to put in high diversity because most of the other um, species within that family are very, very expensive seed and small seeds. And they also don't really um, go as well in uh, with competition or too much and how they prepare the seed beds. Whereas the, the white quinoa is, you know, sort of similar size seed to millet and it, it can grow quite well and, and um, competitive within the mix. So, yeah, that's something we've been... Um, implementing in our mixes as well, playing around with, yeah.
1: Do you think, um, I'll ask Simon, do you think that we need to put all of those species in together to start with or is it something that we build up to? What's the strategy when you're starting into multi-species covers?
2: Yeah, when I first tackled this issue back in, for me it was back in 2014, Um, I jumped in boots and all as you do. And and I've seen plenty of people do the same thing since and probably spent way more money on seed than what I actually needed to. So over the years, I, I guess I've, I've learned a few little tricks and, and one of those tricks is you need, need your own thought processes and, and head to be in the right spot. So this is a challenge. It's, it's something that's not common and a lot of people are, are turning to it now. Uh, And it's certainly the flavor of the month, if you will. But uh, I'm seeing people make the same mistakes as what I made earlier on in the piece and get somewhat disappointed with results, particularly with these really high diversity blends. So I guess what I'm saying is start off small. Uh, Anything more than two species is a blend. And yes, you do need the more the merrier, if you will, to achieve something like quorum sensing. I think they, they reckon that you need six plus species and those species need to come from at least three of the functional plant groups to have any chance of reaching quorum sensing, which is whereby you have enough different kinds of biology to perform all the tasks that are necessary in a, a healthy soil. So the problem with that is particularly when you're starting out, you, if you get these big blends, you tend to chuck all the seed out there. um, And quite often you can't find a fair few of those species. So you get somewhat disappointed in that. uh, And that that's not uncommon. So I like to try and start people off with the bread and butter species, as I call them, things that I know will go well in almost every circumstance, and are relatively cheap and robust, and will certainly give a result. The other point to that is that more often than not, people are starting out from a very low base. So quite often, a lot of these more funky plant species just can't establish because they're too challenged by soil constraint. So you need to earn the right to grow a lot of these different species. And that takes time for your soil to heal, and for your own thought processes to get into the right space so that you can recognize what actually happens as you go along and, and make the correct adjustments and don't just assume that a seed, for instance, didn't come up because of the weather, for instance, which is a common, a common thing that we as farmers jump to. We we assume the season did it for whatever reason. It was too dry, it was too wet, or it was too hot, too cold. And quite often than not, the weather did play a part, but was only a small part of the of the actual result. So, yeah, build up to it. Give yourself some confidence. Kick a couple of goals and, and um, see how things work within your own enterprise and your own environment with some of those bread and butter species before you really start trying to find and fine-tune it and yeah, earn the right to grow those funky species like quinoa.
1: I've seen a, a clover pasture and then they just over sowed oats into it. And the change in just the aggregation and the soil health of that soil was dramatic. So just starting low is probably your first step if you want to start slowly. But Grant, Is it economical? What if we wanted all of these things in? What type of costing is it per hectare to get maybe six standard multi-species cover seeds?
0: Uh, Yeah, look, it can be economical and, and, you know, ideally if you can, you know, grow some of your own seed, um, some of your, like um, Simon said, your bread and butter ones that are quite common to build your diversity and base and then just add in some of the, you know, not so commonly grown ones to, to add diversity. But um. Yeah, so it's, you can do it easily and, oh, yeah, I agree with all that. Like um, th- there can be times and, and points where you're just throwing in heaps and heaps of things for the sake of adding that diversity in. you've got to sort of sometimes weigh up, are they giving me an economic return? And maybe they will down the track, maybe they don't, but we kind of try and stick to sort of heavy hitters we know are going to, you know, um, do the work but add the diversity as well and, and try and keep things as economical as we can. You know, we do a lot of companion cropping as well, and intercropping where we might just grow two or three things together, and and you definitely see things change and less disease. And um, and that example you said with the oats and the, the clover, like the oats are really a ripping plant should be nearly in every mix and um, they can uh, secrete this water soluble compound that can inhibit a lot of diseases in the legume and pulse crops so there's so much stuff going on there that now that they can scientists can test you know in the rhizosphere and the roots and what's going on and and give us some answers and and that's what we see you know once you get these things happening you know less disease less insect pressure so a lot of benefits there
1: how important is it to have a plan for why you're sowing your cover crop? I mean, we can start off and they're absolutely fun to grow. The first one that you grow, like what a joy it is to walk out in that multi-species cover crop. I see lots of people get joy from that. But when you start really using it strategically, how important is it to have that plan? Who wants to take that one on?
2: Oh, I can have a go at that. It's like everything, Nakala, planning is very important. You've got to know where you want to go to, for instance, like a cover crop is, serves can serve many purposes. Everything from capturing sunlight, carbon, and nutrient cycling, to water infiltration, uh, preparing the ground for the next cover crop, uh, um, combating weeds, for instance, uh, and also disease. So there is a multitude of of reasons why you might want to grow a cover crop. So you need to plan it carefully. And a lot of that planning is based around where you want to go to next. So for instance, if you're in a cropping paddock and you you want to go back to cereals, for instance, you're going to need uh, a cover crop mix leading into that that serves the purposes to promote the growth of your following cereal crop. So uh, it needs to be able to cover all of the soil. You know, if you've got the right planter to be able to plant through that, that residue, you want all that soil covered up. So you're probably going to need a, a vining plant in there as well to try and creep across any of those areas where your seed didn't come up, for instance, but you need to be able to terminate it successfully, depending on what you have available to you in the way of terminating equipment, whether or not you're going to spray it or crimp roll it or slash it or mulch it or feed it to your cows first, for instance, as a standing forage and then, and then go back in and plant the cereal. In North Queensland, in, in the sugar industry, certainly I'm in a high rainfall zone where I have to, if I use it as a cover crop... I have to ensure that it's covered the soil up 100% to stop all that raindrop impact during the wet season. So that's my primary focus in a, in a cover crop. And I tend to plant it thick so that uh, that I will achieve that. Um, in addition to covering up all those spaces on the soil with plants that I want to grow, I'm trying to hold another Mother Nature back from putting plant species in there that she wants to grow just because they're hardy and they're covering up those spots where I left a gap. So I'm trying to outcompete her with species that I think will benefit me and my production system going forward. So maybe, so, yeah. just,
1: maybe just help her out rather than outcompete her. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you mentioned that you can match your multi-species to the following crop. If I um, was going to be growing a wheat crop, Grant, this is in your area, um, what would be a good multi-species crop to grow and will that take it all the way through to that wheat crop? So um, talk about maybe the seed set and how, how you keep that all flowing until your wheat crop is ready to be sown.
0: Yeah, we, we definitely can. And we've done that before and it's pretty exciting. Um, I suppose things you've got to consider as rainfall, whether you've got irrigation, you know, whether you're in a low rainfall or summer dominant rain and all those things to weigh in. When that's not an issue, like, for instance, high rainfall areas through summer and winter and irrigation, we've done where we've come in. So if you look at breaking it down into four sort of groups of warm season grass, warm season broadleaf, cool season grass, cool season broadleaf. Um, if you go warm season, broadleaf to a cool season grass, that's like a true rotation. A lot of times we talk about in cropping, we're doing a rotation between canola and wheat, which is they're both cool season plants. So we're sowing them at the t- same time. We're not breaking cycles of weed patterns and chemistry. So a true rotation, obviously water, uh, you've got to be mindful of that. But we've d- done mixes before. We will load it up with warm season legumes, radishes, sunflower, buckwheat, uh, the little sprinkling of millet and things like that um, you know growing that right up sowing the wheat in I think it was I don't know 2018 we did that on some irrigation at home here and we we only used 20 litres of UAN as a pop-up with some other liquid biological stuff so very low input for the wheat crop which and it yielded I think 9.8 tonnes to the hectare 11.8 percent protein because we'd use that crop to set it up now that's easy when you've got irrigation and high rainfall if you're in a more marginal area like we are here on our dry land, you might be a little bit more conservative of your subsoil moisture over the summer. So um, what we've found is using even cool season legumes over the summer that don't have the taproot to get down and rob uh, the subsoil moisture, but they can still provide ground cover, leak nitrogen and carbon into the soil. So that's a good thing in advance. Or you know, if you were just going to do a traditional summer fallow you might do a mix a bit more loaded with cool season legumes and and broadleaf crops with a sprinkling of your oats and things in there. And it's no different, like even out in the Mallee, they might do a, you know, a brown manure vetch to then spray out um, to then put a weed in next year. Well, we can do that, but better by adding more diversity, add those scavengers in there, the brassicas and things to make them pump more nitrogen and work. So it really, it's, it depends on your environment and you've got to, You know, the principle's all the same, but it's just how you adapt it to your rainfall and and soil type and things like that.
1: So if you do put in your summer molded species after you um, have harvested and then you want to spray that out because you don't want that seed set and then you've got that gap before you sow your next cash crop, how do you manage that? Is it worth it doing that moldy species and then having that gap because you've got that fallow before the crop?
0: once again it depends on your situation but what we've found um where you're worried about the subsoil moisture it's species selection so choosing varieties that might not rob as much subsoil or time of termination so if we can terminate them before they start flowering and start really get... When a plant flowers and goes to seed, that's when it tries to extract everything out of its its soil it can to, you know, regenerate and produce seed and and things like that. So if we can shut them down um, before that, we can still conserve moisture. Most of the good work that the plants are doing are in the early stages when they're really pumping the root exudates in and, and getting that work done. And we've done this, we've got moisture probes over the farm where we'll measure our soil moisture throughout the summer and found even on a bare fallow, you're still going to, no matter how much stubble cover you're going to, you know, have generally for us, it's can get that hot and dry. You'll lose that 30 to 40% top soil moisture to evaporation anyway. Now, when you're losing moisture out of your soil to evaporation, you're not making money, but if you can transpire it through a plant, um, and then graze it with mu- uh, an animal, now you're, you're starting that cycle, you're, you're actually making money over the summer. And it's one thing that, you know, probably every farmer hates doing, but it's a necessarily evil, is you've got this massive asset, your land sitting there, and you get summer rains, and all you do is spend money on it, and you're not making any money on this asset, you, you know. And, I mean, that can come back in the bank account later by conserving moisture, but... If you've got animals to feed and you're buying in hay, well, you know, it's a really good opportunity to get something growing that's pretty water efficient, those um, summer plants. But just being mindful um, of what you want to do, like Simon said next. And at times, if we are doing a summer cover crop, uh, you know, a multi-species, you know, sometimes we want them to get the tap roots down and break up the soil, but we've got to be smart and go, well, if we don't get a recharge through the spring or the winter the following year, we're potentially going to hit a wall in grain fill um, because we've used some of that subsoil moisture. So in those instances, we actually might follow them with another uh, multi-species cover crop, which seems to be far more water efficient anyway. And then we're not, we're still harvesting those multi-species cover crop, but we're not taking them through to November to harvest for grain. We're harvesting them through the winter with animals and then we'll terminate them before seed set and we can start the process again. But it's just about building a system, and 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 like Simon said, having having those plans ahead of time, so you, you don't run into making mistakes and failures.
1: So it's not uncommon to have two multi-species cover crops in between harvest and sowing your next crop.
0: It would be generally uncommon on a in a whole, like for a lot of um, probably Victoria and the the lower rainfall areas where they don't get much. It's fair, even for us here; it's fairly opportunistic, like we. This summer, they've forecasted a number of times, 160 mil, 100 mil, but we've got one or two mil. So for us, it is opportunistic over the summer, but definitely, you know, people say, oh, it's too hot and dry, but you're always going to have heliotrope or burrs or something will always grow. Um, So if you get the right plants, the sunflower, millet, some of these things, that you can get them relatively cheap in there and they're still going to grow rather than having a paddock full of weeds that you're spraying all the time. So I've never seen... anywhere where over the summer, nothing will grow. Always something will want to grow off as a sniff of moisture.
1: It's good. We've got two different extremes here. So uh, I forgot to mention that Grant is down south in Victoria and Simon is up in the tropics of Queensland. So Simon, is that the same situation for you up there? Is it reasonable to use two multi-species covers before you plant your next crop?
2: Yes, it can be. And this is a a really good way of getting extra diversity in there quite often in the cane cycle there there is opportunity to use two different cover crops back to back and the second cover crop will be something that's really quick so you can use plant species like millet or japanese millet uh, buckwheat for instance that, that are really quick and you'll get the full benefit out of them in 60 days, 60 or 70 days. So they really don't need to be there any longer than that. Otherwise they're starting to flower and set seed. And as Grant said, once once they're flowering and setting seed, they've probably done the best of their duty for you as far as cover cropping goes. They've gone into phase three of of the plant growth and they're concentrating on, on reproduction. And if you're using them for grazing, for instance, then they're already getting past their best. You really want to be grazing them in phase two, for instance. That's where they're doing all of their good work. So, so yeah, the same thing applies up here. And, and for me, those cover crops are not so much to do with using moisture, but capturing moisture. So remember, we get rainfall for free. And we need to maximize the capture of that rainfall in our production system. Doesn't matter if you've got an irrigated system. Yeah, fair enough, you can water it, but gee whiz, it's going to cost you. So if you can capture every drop of rainfall that you get on your land and none of it's running off, that's always going to be a bonus. And cover crops are the best way to do that. Even if it's a brown cover crop, you know, it's something that you've planted and and it's run out of moisture and died so long as it's got above the ground and set a few leaves it will capture more moisture than if you had a bare fallow guaranteed so you've got those root systems there and you've got some channels into the soil for the water to follow so yeah a cover crop does not have to be uh what we would think successful in in the fact that it's reached flowering and seed set Uh, in a lot of instances so long as it's got like this big, it's done a power of good for you. So keep that in mind. It's all about capturing sunlight, water, carbon and nitrogen at every opportunity.
1: That's interesting. You've both said that these plants are actually doing their really good work at the start of their life. Are we going to be seeing sunnies out there in those multi-species cover crops anymore? What about these flowers that are bringing in insects and things like that? Is that more for pasture rather than for the cropping people?
0: No, not necessarily. And, and the sunflowers are a great example. And especially where we've put them in dairy situations, like the animals nearly won't touch them until they flower and, and set seed. And then when they do, they're they're high value, high energy, the oil seed in the sunflower. And then they're getting that tap root down. And um, so yeah, there's times where you let them go to flower for sure. And and just sort of like reiterating on like what Simon was saying, that that capturing the moisture, I don't know how many times I see. Cropping paddocks or soils where they've got either a plough pan or they've ripped and then they've pushed the plough pan a bit deeper, and you'll get a big rainfall event. And it might sometimes, if you're lucky, it'll infiltrate. Well, that's the goal to get it as fast as you can. But then a lot of times it sits on that plough pan and it won't go. I've done soil pits and seen the moisture just sitting there and it won't actually go down to depth or it takes a long time. And in that time, we're exposed to evaporation. And if we can get these plants creating channels to get that water down deeper, faster, we can hold water at depth far better.
1: Yeah, spot on. I think Simon said that the other night and I just had a real aha moment. I was like, Ah, yeah, and I've been around these multi-species cover crops for ages. So if you take anything away from this podcast, it's about the water infiltration and capturing the water. A lot of people uh, will say that your multi-species cover crop is going to take away my moisture profile. It's going to use my moisture for my following crop. So this kind of explains that, well, no, it, it could, but if you get the rainfall, you'll do better. And, again, there's always risk in farming, isn't there?
0: Yeah, and once again, it's how you manage it. And we've had very hard-setting, high sodic clays now on really flat ground that can get real waterlogged and wet in the in the winter and dry and hard in the summer. And uh, We did, um, like, trials and we tested soil tests before this and after and three years in a row of winter, multi-species followed by summer, and after three years, we'd seen our total active biology uh, over double what was the desired level, you know, nutrients and things like that. But what was interesting when we put it back into the cropping rotation, you know, I remember the old man commenting, going, "Geez, this ground's it's soft. It's soft now. Um, it's like we'd ripped it." You know, in, when especially in a cropping situation, if you need to improve your soil like that, it's generally us spending money, ripping, liming, gypsum, you know, manure, whatever, and. At the end of the day you've spent all this money. Well we took another approach to use multi-species, multi-species, and we've improved the soil using plants while making money instead of spending money. We're I mean, getting that return on on, you know, grazing and live weight gains and that. So it can be really fun as a tool um, to use strategically. Yeah.
1: And I think it's about planning that budget. You've got to take in the live weight gains of the animals and you've got to take in the cost that you didn't spend on lime and gypsum and deep ripping. A farmer's doing that. Do you think
0: measuring the live weight gains and
1: oh, just pulling it all together, the value of these cover crops. It's not like a black and white budget that you can set. It's like this holistic way of going. Oh, I saved money there. I gained money there. I,
0: you know. Yeah, I'll, uh, jump in there because I'm very lucky and get to speak to a lot of farmers that are trying this, and you get all levels of um, experience and and where they're at, but. When, you know, you, I do. You hear stories where they're saying uh, and dairy farmers are great because they get pretty quick feedback. They're monitoring their animals twice a day, like, you know, very closely, and um, they can measure things in the milk fat and, you know, problems with the animals. But, you know, instances where farmers might have been ryegrass, clover, putting 400 kilos of urea a year out, you know, silage, feeding stuff all summer, going to multi-species in the winter, multi-species in the summer, no more nitrogen in the system. A lot less mastitis and other animal health issues that when you're putting those high performance animals in intensive um these systems. And yeah, it's really exciting when you hear guys out there they're seeing, you know, and they said, look, it might it might not have happened overnight, it might have taken two, three, five years. But when they start seeing these things, it's really exciting. And um, that's I suppose also to have in mind that don't expect miracles. Year one, it's that you've got to set the plan and, and make it work. And and I know with you know, we can take a longer approach or a shorter approach. but There's ways we can get there faster because, you know, people like Simon and, and a lot out there that have done this, we don't have to all make the same mistakes. So,
1: yeah.
0: myself him, included, I've made many. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's the fun of it. What about, I will just stick with you for one more, Grant, before I go back to Simon. Is it profitable in cropping in low rainfall areas where you don't have summer rain? How can you incorporate multi-species crops in there?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, and, and I think that's a thing that comes up a lot. I know when I was in with Vic No Till that guys in the Mallee or low rainfall say, no, nah, it depends what perception you have, and I think calling them a cover crop, and when they first started getting floated around over here, it was we harvest the wheat, we put a cover crop in, and then we grow the next wheat crop, and in those environments, it's probably, well, it's going to take a long time for the soil to improve, I think, and potentially it's how you manage that. But if we change the the terminology from cover crops to, you know, multi-species forages, and at the end of the day, we're just trying to get diversity in there, and it doesn't have to be a cover crop. So in some of these cropping systems where they're running livestock, to me it's it's an absolute winner because, you know, you can still sow it like any traditional wheat crop you would, but instead of just sowing, you know, whatever, you know, oats or whatever they might sow for their lambs and sheep to graze on over the winter, we can add that diversity, which can help the ewes produce more milk, the lambs get better life weight gains. So we just, and you still treat it like your other crops, but we're just adding diversity. So, um, you know, and then the same before I said where these brown manures are going on, we can add a radish, we can add some different things in there to manage it the same, but just adding diversity amplifies um, your results, um, from what I see, so yeah, they can work anywhere and everywhere.
1: So you're saying use it in the winter to add diversity, but in the summer when there's no rainfall?
0: Well, I would start with that. That's the system, you know, and what you do, and just get more diversity in when you're growing. So you know, down here in in Victoria, you know, you might not get any summer rain at all. Um, so you just you know, start with that. But I know myself when I started seeing bigger changes in our soils, it was when we could get these summer plants in because if you look at our environment here back in its natural, um, you know, before we come over and there would be a mixture of warm season grasses, cool season grasses, a mixture of all of them. And we're, and now all our soils ever generally traditionally get as cool season plants so they do still have that requirement and that's you know summer weeds are growing trying to to fill that void so if we can fill it with a, um, a warm season plant uh, you know mimic some of the weeds that are out there and choose something that's close to that that you can make money on grazing and I mean another really cool thing to think about is if you get a say a wheat plant, a C3 grass or cereal, and it, you grow it to about a foot high and dig up that plant, have a look at the root system on that. Now go and dig up a millet or a C4 or a sorghum that's a foot high and dig up and have a look at the root system. It is chalk and cheese. Those C4 plants have just got these massive, powerful root systems. They're very mycorrhizal, fungal, you know, high associations. They can do a huge amount of work in your sort of breaking up your soil and and really feeding it so where we can get them in and other um i suppose you don't just have to follow the same recipe or the same sort of process like we've we've implemented them in before and it really works well you say you get an early start everyone's sowing earlier these days and you know there's longer season varieties we get an opportunistic you know march big rain we can sow it in and and grow it right through well we've put things like buckwheat sorghum sunflowers millet in with our wheat crops you know in march or april so then you know you get four to six to eight weeks growth out of them when they're doing the most amount of work pumping the soil um with their exudates and then they frost out naturally on their own but they haven't got down and robbed any subsoil moisture because they haven't had the chance before the frost comes in so We don't necessarily always have to plant them in October, November, December, January. We could still be planting these plants in in March and April and they'll still get four to six weeks till middle of May, June before they frost out. But we're adding that diversity in with our wheat crop Um, and some of this stuff you can get pretty cheap, sunflower seed and things like that really. So yeah, there are other cool little ways. Buckwheat's a ripper because it releases so much phosphorus when it's grown and it's really easy to frost out for us down here.
1: Yeah, so can you use less fertiliser when you use those additional seeds, do you think?
0: Yeah, you can. But once again, you're sort of cautious on that um, approach because, like Simon mentioned before, you've sort of got to earn the right to. If you don't have good aerated soils and good subsoil structure and, and active biological soils, you know, and you're new in this system, it might be sort of dependent on those fertilisers, so and I've seen people remove it too early and then their crops become, you know, a bit sooky and, or a bit lethargic and, and they're missing out because they're so used to that. So you've got to set it once again a bit of a plan to how you can wean off. But definitely, like, we've grown some huge amounts of dry matter with no nitrogen or phosphorus applied that um, we've had it in the system for a while. And the other thing to, to think about, I think, um, with this, which is quite really important, I reckon, when we see a lot of this work, done out of the northern hemisphere, a lot of their cover crops they're planting is in the spring as our daylight is getting longer and the soil temperatures are warming up, things are becoming more active. So definitely in the summer it's really easy when you've got warm soil temperatures, but most of the time down south here we're sowing in, you know, going into it the other way around. So days are getting shorter, soils are getting cooler and we're getting colder and wetter. And and, and I've found we, we, I'm always monitoring soil temperatures just to see you know, a lot of different things, what's going on. But once your soil temperature gets down below 10 degrees, like in June, July, it's like putting food in the fridge to slow the process down so it lasts longer. So there's certain microbes and organisms that operate at different levels, but um, a lot of them will slow down. And particularly some of that nitrogen fixing and uh, phosphorus solubilizing ones, they work better in a warmer soil. So we've got to be careful that we're not asking them to do too much you know for what our soil temperatures and time of the year and and where we are in our system.
1: Yeah good advice. Simon I'm going to go to you do you think that you can match your cover crop to your soil test deficiencies?
2: Yes to some extent you can. Uh, So there are a lot of different plant species that are better at cycling certain nutrients than others. Um, So for instance Uh, Oats, we mentioned earlier, is is great uh, for cycling phosphorus. It can actually exudate a compound and cycle phosphorus without the help of biology. It's one of the few plants that can do it itself. Um, Mycorrhizal fungi is largely responsible for the cycling of, of phosphorus in our agricultural systems as well as in native systems, And there are plant species that are referred to as highly mycorrhizal. And that's how I got onto onto planting sunflowers originally, for instance, because they are one of those species that's referred to as highly mycorrhizal. They encourage mycorrhizal fungi. In my sugarcane system here in North Queensland, I went so far as, as to actually plant sunflowers as an intercrop in cane to test this theory. And where it was just cane alone, we could only find two species of mycorrhizal fungi in relatively low numbers. And where we had cane and sunflowers growing together, we had six species of mycorrhizal fungi in quite large numbers. And that was just by planting seed. So this was all done through with DNA. So we were pretty confident in, in our results. So you can massively influence biological function just by planting the right kind of seed for a particular instance. And whether or not that in that instance led to further uh, phosphorus cycling, uh, I didn't have the the funding at the time to prove that, but that's the theory behind it. So another plant species that I love is lucerne. So lucerne has a great big taproot system on it. Um, It's a pretty good sort of a legume. And these days there's so many different kinds of lucerne you nearly get a loosen for every, for every kind of situation and they're great for cycling calcium. So if you're in a, in a situation where your calcium is somewhat limited, uh, yeah, I'd certainly have loosen in the mix, so to speak. So yeah, there's, there's plenty of opportunity uh, once you get right into it to tweak mixes, deliberately trying to cycle particular nutrients for your next crop cycle, so to speak. Um, I just wanted to go back over a couple of things that Grant said earlier. There was a comment about no more N. He's obviously referring to the fact that there was no more, no more need to apply those 400 kgs of N hectare in that dairy system. We have to remember as farmers that the air that we're breathing is 78% nitrogen. 78% nitrogen. Uh, and yet carbon dioxide only makes up 0 or 0.03 of 1%. So those plants that we're growing are largely composed of carbon. And now every plant can suck carbon dioxide out of the air and turn it into biomass. Legumes are the main way that um, nitrogen comes out of the air, but that's through biological function. The, The legumes are doing it in partnership with biology. Now, You know, when you've got that much nitrogen in the air and yet plants are are largely composed of of carbon, when carbon's only 0.03%, I think there's so much opportunity to better utilise legumes in particular to drag some of that nitrogen out of the air and make use of it in our cropping systems. Uh, There was another comment about ripping. Quite often, ripping is something that we need to do. You know, We have a wet harvest, for instance, and we need to ameliorate those soils and, and let that that air back into the soil. Remembering that our biology is very much aerobic, like we are, it needs to breathe oxygen. And if it can't breathe, it'll die. So if you're going to rip, use that steel and spend that money on diesel, trying to open up your soil, Then you should be carefully considering what plant species you could be planting at the same time to try and keep those ripple lines open for longer. Because if you've got soils, those heavy clay soils that tend to seal back over very quickly with the next rainfall event, you can spend a lot of money on ripping and have it all sealed up behind you almost as quickly as you did it. So think about plant species with good tap roots that can get down there and and keep those ripple lines open. We struggle with dry times right across Australia, you know, it's the driest continent on earth, so it's not uncommon to be running out of moisture. Now, there are still plant species, as Grant mentioned, that will always be trying to grow out there, and there's still windows of opportunity. So, there are times that you can, and choosing the right plant species, for instance, that you can sow dry. And take advantage of any little bit of rainfall that comes along. If you've already got the seed out there, it's ready and waiting to grow. So if you're planting dry, obviously you need a, a plant species that can sit there and wait, but there are plenty of them that can sit there and wait for you wait for that next rainfall event. You've got those windows remembering we're trying to capture those four things for free all the time and, and you're thinking, well, how am I going to do this? You know, I've got a rainfall event predicted that's 100 mils in summer, but I only get 10. If you went with the forecast, you might have planted the wrong seed, so to speak, dry, and thinking you're going to get 100 mils, you get 10. So, yeah, you, you need that plant species that's hardy and can hang on from one rainfall event to the next, but that you can plant dry ahead of that 100 mils. Now, if you get the 100 mils, By the time you could get back out in the paddock, yeah, you've already lost a couple of weeks. But if you'd had it on the ground beforehand, it's already this big by the time you could have got out there after the rainfall event.
1: And what species would you use um, in that scenario? You're saying there's species that are hardy. Which ones are they for that hundred mil future rainfall event?
2: You have to learn a little bit about seeds in general. So as a general rule. The larger and the softer a seed is, the more soil cover it needs. So, if you've got something like a soybean, for instance, that's quite quite large and is definitely soft, it needs sort of forty or fifty mil of soil cover, um, or from twenty mil to fifty mil somewhere. They have soil cover to uh, allow it time to actually soak up that moisture and come up. Whereas a small hard seed is much more robust and it can be planted much closer to the surface or actually on the surface. So like in a a really dry situation, there there are plant species that you can literally broadcast dry. So it's a cheap way of getting the seed out there. It'll sit there and wait for you. So the smaller and the harder a seed is, the closer to the surface you can plant it as a general rule, the bigger and softer it is, the more cover it needs. So rather than trying to pick on plant species because if I was to name a couple yeah, people would be rushing out to plant them but that's not necessarily the right species for their particular environment so there it's yeah think of it like that it's more to do with the seed size and the seed hardness as to how robust it will be and how willing it might be to wait for the next rainfall event.
1: Grant do you have anything to add to that one?
0: No, it's all all good. I, I agree with all that. It's a, it's a good rule, sort of general rule to, to stick with that, the harder, smaller seeds. and And, I mean, yeah, most seeds can – ideally you want soil cover, but, you know, in nature a lot of time they're dropping on the ground and when the rain and the conditions are right, up they come and – You know, even over cool season grasses like wheat, you know, you get a a good summer rain, you got volunteer wheat growing everywhere. So, yeah, we've seen lots of examples where broadcasting can, but, yeah, if you get good seed to soil, contact's always best.
1: Simon, I'm going to go back to you. We know that if we plant legumes, then we can use less nitrogen in the following crop. That's been proven. How can you terminate to make sure that that nitrogen sticks around at the right time for that following crop? Is there any skills there that you need?
2: Certainly. Every situation is different. We mentioned green manures and brown manures before. Um, I'll also go to the next step and talk a little bit about Uh, bacterial to fungi ratios in our soils. So in a conventional cropping system, and certainly in the cane industry up here, we're very conventional, high input, high use of steel sort of a system. We have a very bacterially dominated soil system, which is not good when it comes to cycling uh, nutrients and trying to uh, build Carbon, for instance, so we need more more of those fungal uh, kind of biologies in there. So for me, when I'm terminating a legume cover crop, for instance, if I'm not going to actually physically harvest it, and it might be a while before I'm going to physically plant the next plant species, I will deliberately terminate that plant, most likely using herbicide, but leave it stand. So leave it standing on the surface. It's still protecting my soil if we get one of those rain, heavy rainfall events and I haven't disturbed the soil um, and I will actually get to hang on to more of my N. Commonly up here, people would, would get out there and, and um, terminate that green manure with a set of offset discs, for instance. So they, they've turned that green manure into the soil And that's a perfectly acceptable way of terminating a cover crop. Uh, However, if you're not going to plant your next cash crop inside of the next, you know, three to four weeks, you're going to lose a significant portion of the nitrogen that your cover crop just grew. So, yeah, it's about planning. Am I ready to plant my next cash crop? Do I terminate it green with the offsets and some steel or do I you yeah, know, use a bit of herbicide and let it stand there and, and try and encourage more fungal breakdown of that biomass rather than bacterial breakdown of that biomass. So, so yeah, these, these things are very important. And certainly for me, if I wasn't going to harvest that cover crop with the header, then I would be just terminating it and leaving it stand until I was ready to go back in there and literally plant that next cash crop, whatever it was.
1: Grant, grazing cattle or sheep, is there any species in a multi-species cover crop that we should be wary of with grazing times?
0: Uh, yeah, potentially. Um, there's species within varieties that, that can cause issues, like a good example of that is like your sorghums and millets. Is like grain sorghums and things that are, can have that proseric acid and if it, it's under stress, the plant, or, or young, can be risky grazing those things. So that's why we should always use. Um, so that's that's a certain species within that variety, but there's species of sorghums and that out there that are very little, if any, you know, very, very low risk of any of that perseric acid. So they're the sort of varieties we use and and should be used when grazing. Because the, the worst thing, you know, you don't want to be after worrying about how you're managing when you're grazing and that. So you always try and choose, plant species that are suitable for grazing at any time, we, we find is always the best. Um, and then there's also things to be mindful of ratios too, because there's plants in there that, that potentially if it's in a monoculture and that's all they're going to eat, that can run into issues. Um, you know, even buckwheat's one with, you can get photosensitivity if, if fair skinned animals like sheep are grazing them over the summer but I've done a lot of work with this and, and some sinus in the States. And if we keep them at a, a certain ratio or a certain amount of kilos per hectare in a well-designed mix, it's not an issue at all. So it's probably the same as us. If we eat or drink too much of one thing, it can be toxic. Alcohol is probably a good example of that um, to us. But if we have a little bit in moderation with a balanced diet, it's, you know, it can be beneficial as well. So Just being wary of the species you're choosing and also the ratios that you put them in there if you are grazing is important, definitely.
1: Well, you're basically feeding the soil as well as the animals. So just be responsible like you would with your dinner plate type of thing is what you're saying.
0: Yeah, 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 pretty much.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, What's the reasonable amount to spend on multi-species cover crops these days? What mixes do you have and what sort of prices are they per hectare?
0: Oh, for us, like we try and, because we do a lot of broad acres, so we want to make them affordable to do on large areas. Um, so like, and we use for that, it's fairly cost effective to get high diversity in with mainly annuals. Cause when you start adding the perennials, they can really bump the price up and depends where you are in your system. And I, I see, you know, we'll probably get into that in a, in a bit, but um, you know, I reckon 40, 50, you know, $60 a hectare. It really depends on, your rainfall a bit too uh, and your environment if you're in a high production high rainfall area where well, you can probably afford to spend a little bit more um and also depending on you know what you're going to do like if you're grazing them like there's pretty good money at the moment for cattle beef and sheep um you know we I think last year our young cattle were getting $9.15 we topped the market at yay um per kilo live weight so and with this higher diversity you know, we've done a number of trials and had our mixes in where they, you know, the average down here for greenhams on grass fed systems, about 900 grams a day. Last year, some of our cattle or young cattle on their mums still were doing 1.7 to 2 kilos a day. So if they're getting those extra returns on live weight gains and, and the price, are, you know, it all comes into it. So you can probably afford to, to target some, um, you know, a bit higher of nutrition and get more diversity in. So yeah, it probably comes down to what you're going to do with them and, even, you know, in orchards and things like that, you know, these guys can be selling and Simon's got probably more experience on on that sense in growing there. But, um, you know, they've got these high value crops. So if we can put in well-designed plants that will minimise diseases in the crop, help feed, you know, get rid of nematodes that might be a problem to those trees or bring in bees and pollinators that can really increase the production. Well, then, you know, it it all depends on what, you know, your enterprise is and, and what you're doing with them, really.
1: Going back to, you said we're going to talk about the perennials versus the annuals. Could I give an example? Say if I had a pasture and it just didn't have a lot of diversity, it was kind of struggling a bit, had a bit of compaction, um, but the soil test kind of looked pretty normal, no big deficiencies. How would you manage to increase the health of that soil with a cover crop?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. And there's um, mixes we've been playing around with and looking what we're sort of calling biological primers. And it's it's interesting now, even like in the MLA, they're identifying you know pasture dieback, and they've actually identified that they get less pasture dieback when there's a legume or there's more essentially more diversity in there. So grass dominated grass pastures are a really good one for that because what we've found and seen a lot of it, it can be quite hard. You Know if you're looking at the soil as, as an animal or, or a living thing that needs to be fed. Well, if they've got a lot of native or you know, grass dominant there, they're kind of getting their fill on that. But a lot of the time, when you walk these pastures, they've got dandelion or they've got um, you know, a thistle or or whatever, and that that's sort of this, what they're missing. So it's really easy to stitch in, you know, your, your radishes, some clovers. Um, Buckwheat, you know some of these, um, and and they can be biological primers, mustards and things that can, you know, um, and sometimes they mightn't provide huge growth with the grasses, but it might make that grass perform better where they're getting a higher level of nutrition out of it or less disease and things like that. So definitely biological primers. And on the um, annual and perennial type thing, I think it's sort of you got to be mindful for where you are in if you look at the soil. You know, succession of the soil from pioneer plants, mosses, and you know, then weeds, a pioneer, and then you go to annuals and perennials and up to shrubs and conifers. It's sort of like Simon touched on before, it's um, it's on a sliding scale of bacterial dominated to, to fungal dominated. And I think sometimes we can try and run before we walk, and we're pr- trying to put these perennials into these highly bacterial soils that mightn't have a good source structure or, or be really conducive for them to thrive in so we can sort of use these high diversities annuals to kind of prime the soil and start getting it functioning start feeding some fungi you know in there start opening up the subsoil and and then slowly stitch these perennials in with the annuals and i really like this approach because with developing a perennial pasture it's it's great and a great way to get to but um You know, the seed's expensive and you don't get much return on investment year one while they're establishing, whereas if we can put some annuals in there that can be relatively uh, economical, you can get some good production off that, some return on investment while your perennials are, you know, sort of developing underneath them. And I've seen where we've had trials where a high diverse annual versus, you know, a a perennial-type system. And for millimetres of rain falling within a 12-month period, the annuals can just produce so much dry matter if you choose the right ones. Like, you know, once you get these summer mixes and things, the sorghums growing up, you know, 12 feet high and and sunflowers, eight and 10 foot, like it's a huge amount of uh, biomass we can generate with these annuals off, um, you know, very efficient with water. Um, So, yeah, it's, I think we've just got to be mindful of where we're at and set the scene. You have a plan to getting those perennials in.
1: Simon, what about sowing into those existing pastures? Can you can you give us, you know, what, what are most people doing that you've had experience with? Are they spraying it out or are they sowing directly in? What would be your best strategy if you wanted to increase the health and diversity of a pasture that's not just moving much?
2: So if I just take a step back to where Grant was talking a moment ago and using annuals into a perennial, existing pasture, that's, that's a, a great way of capturing extra sunlight. Remember, we're trying to capture that sunlight, and annuals will always produce more biomass because they have a, a shorter lifespan. They're in a hurry. They have to get their, you know, they have to do their growing because they, they want to set seed this year, whereas a perennial will sit there and wait for years and years sometimes before it gets a, enough moisture to seed. So, yeah, it's a window of opportunity in our pasture system to introduce annuals. Uh, and if you've got moisture in the system, why not introduce some annuals? Uh, I talk to a lot of graziers about this exact scenario on a frequent basis. Grazing systems are, in this country are largely based on native grasslands um, and dryland systems. But there, there's so much opportunity to add some annuals in there just to build soil carbon and to a- enhance production. So, yeah, all you really need is is to be able to get the seed in the ground, so to speak. So, in some cases, you might be able to get out there with your, with your no-till planter and, and plant it direct into that pasture if you can get the tractor across the ground. But in some instances, you can't do that. But you will be able to actually plant some seed by feeding it to animals, for instance, depending on the um, species and the variety. Small hard seeds, once again, are, are quite robust and depending on the on the species, up to 60% of some species will pass through an animal and still be viable seed out the other end, uh, obviously planted in, into an ideal environment then. So, So, yeah, there's... There's a number of ways of getting, um, adding diversity, even in a broad scale dryland grazing system. Um, And yeah, even adding annuals into that system, which is a great way of priming that soil and then being able to hopefully enhance the perennials as you you go. Um, And that could be, if you're out there planting your annuals anyway, maybe you should have a little bit extra perennial in there Uh, A classic up here is like a uh, grass pasture uh, and it'll just be grass. So there's plenty of opportunity there to put in some annuals obviously, but then add some perennials while you're at it as a perennial legume, or even so much as adding another variety of grass, for instance, because a lot of these pastures have been established for 20 or more years on the back of old something like old callides roach grass which is very common and there, there's some new improved varieties these days so it's the same grass yes but it will enhance what's already there so so yeah i certainly encourage people to do that and when it comes to what species to use something that that i always say to to people is if you pick a species for whatever reason, say it's, it's serving a purpose for you, um, try it at least in three separate seasons. And each time you try it, try a different variety of that species. So I've, I've found this happen to me a few times now where I've chosen a particular species to do a job and it's failed the first year. And I'm thinking, well, you yeah, know, it should have worked. Why didn't it? And I've chosen a different variety the following year and had it mm, a little bit more successful. And then third year, actually had it go great guns with a different species again. So it's another tactic that you can, that you can use to um, work your way through to different species. And just because a species fails the first time doesn't mean to say it'll always fail. So again, yeah, try a different variety. Um, if you're trying something funky, try a small amount. You know, don't, don't just plant the whole thousand hectares. <laughs> um, you know, put, a, put a, little, a couple of little strips in there of, of something different. Uh, graziers in particular quite often set and forget a pasture, and they, they might come back to it 20 years later sort of thing, thinking that they, can, they might enhance it. Well, I, I encourage graziers to think more like croppers and actually have seed in their budget every year, every year. But only in a grazing situation, it, it maybe only needs to be a little bit because this year you'll target one particular area of your pasture, so to speak. Um, but every year you're doing a bit, and that gives you a chance then to try a lot of these different species and then varieties within species without breaking the budget.
0: I'll just um, add in quickly to Nicola um, on the, I suppose, having being mindful of expectations and and, and caution there. I see, because the, the biggest thing with I see into perennial pastures or overstitching and, and having this expectation, it's choosing the right species exactly for one, but you know, you got to think of them like a cash crop. So if you're going to go and sow wheat into a paddock full of grasses and things, you're going to get a result that's, you know, maybe here, let's say one tonne for a figure. Whereas if you had a nice clean paddock, you put the weed in, you set it up well, bang, you might get four tonne under those conditions. So a lot of times where I see sometimes people disappointed um, where they've sown into, you know, really weedy or, or established paddocks. Now, there's certain plants, corn, wheat, you know, if you get them to a certain growth stage with you know, in clean, without competition, What comes after that is not very detrimental to their yield and and growth because now they're the bosses, they own the real estate. But I've even seen myself and done trials with this where you've got a little green tinge on the the soil and you go so into that those little plants have probably got seven to 10 days advantage on that seed that you've just planted. So another seven to 10 days time when your seed's just shooting and coming through, they're already up and, and grabbing all that sunlight and, and pumping and feeding exudates. And they're, they're the sort of boss of that real estate now. So, you know, sometimes you've got to treat them like a cash crop and be mindful that, you know, they're not. it's not going to be a miracle if you sow them into a really thick weedy paddock, certain things will thrive in those conditions, certain species, but but some won't. But generally where we see the most success is when, you know, you've come in, you've got a nice clean seabed, sown the diversity and, and bang, you'll get some huge results.
1: And then the following from that, your native grasses will start to come back into the system. So you've put in your annuals, a, a sprinkling of some perennials. Do you think that just once is enough if you manage it well with your grazing?
0: Yeah, yeah, it depends where you are and where your soil is, but um some some soils will annuals will I mean sorry, the perennial native species just want to grow there, so they'll just come back, but in probably more of the cropping areas where they've been cropped for a for hundred years or more. Um, it might take a little bit longer, but definitely seen instances where they, they can come back. But it, it depends on your system too, because you might not want those perennials. And we, like in our system in the cropping, we don't necessarily want the perennials in there because we want to be able to put it back into annual crops. And I'm happy to, um, to sow it every year because we do anyway, and we're all flat ground, so it's easy. And I know I can get far more production for rainfall off the annuals, but we'll set some paddocks up. Um, you know, for like a more perennial type thing, because it's handy for us in our system. But it, it really depends where you are and, and the system you're at. You know, if you're in the in the hills and the mountains, you don't you don't probably want to run machinery over, you know, hills and things. So, yeah, it just depends on where you are.
1: Yeah. Look, we've gone on for quite a while here. I think we could keep exploring. There's so many unanswered questions here. But just to wrap up, if you want to buy seed, Grant, how do people go about um, accessing seed from Down Under Covers?
0: Easiest way is to check out our website, um, DownUnderCovers.com, um, and we've got a link to our of an email um, address there that I, I check all the time. And um, yeah, put, just send us shoot us an email and have a look online, that's probably the best way. Yeah, thanks.
1: Awesome. And Simon, with your consultancy with Soil Land Food, if someone wanted some help in choosing how to use these multi-species as a strategy or any of their soil health needs, how do they get in contact with you?
2: Once again, uh, a website. So Soil Land Food certainly has a, a, a nice little website there with our contact details on it. Um, so you can shoot us an email, there is, uh, there's four or five of us in, the, in soil land food these days. So yeah, there's uh, a fair bit of experience there for, uh, from myself to David Hardwick and a couple of our other members that can cover off pretty much on, on any question you might have to do with regenerative agriculture uh, stretched all the way from, from uh, Cape York in sunny Queensland to the bottom of Tasmania. So, yeah, we've got a fair spread and, and we can certainly answer most of your questions. So check out the website and, uh, yeah, uh, send us an email or give us a call.
1: Thanks, Simon. A great team at Soiland Food. I would love to end this really cleanly, but I forgot a really important question. <laughs> we talked about biological primers um, as, the, uh, as the seeds of biological primers, but where's the role in biological stimulants in using multispecies cover crops?
0: Yeah, great question. And uh, I think it all starts with the seed and you guys like, the you know, the worm juice uh, or um, as a seed primer, we've we've seen really good results in that, um, you know, with disease in, in the plants, um, getting them functioning better, setting up that rhizosphere. We're, I've done heaps of trials. We did some last year with you know, your commercial side, seed dressings, measuring um, red leg, you know, insect infestations. And even those sides, even though they've got that on there, at three and five leaf, they're above threshold anyway. So you sort of got to question how effective some of those sides are that can be actually a little bit detrimental. And also I've seen where we've, um, you know, on a very minimal amount of rain, two or four mil, we could have treated seed that is just shot versus seed that's got a more biological stimulant like your worm juice on it with roots 20 mil long so it can actually aid in germination and, and the signaling that we need to happen and I think that's where it sometimes gets overlooked um, if we're trying to get all this quorum sensing going which happens through fungal associations if we're putting aside on the seed which a fungicide is to kill fungi it's going to be not really conducive to getting that fungal sharing so you know, your worm juices, that's a really good place to start. And we also see through the winter when when it is colder down here and things start to slow up, we can stimulate or prime it with the, you know, and get the plants brixing higher so that, you know, we do a lot with bricks. and um, before and after you put anything, foliar on your plant, you want to test that and you want to see whatever you're buying and applying to your crop. If it gives you a positive rise in your bricks that's money well spent because that means your plant is now photosynthesizing at a higher capacity, therefore pumping more carbon into the soil. And also when that plant is grazed, it's a higher nutrient density, which leads to greater live weight gain. So, you know, I know a lot and we've used the the Nutrisoil worm juice and and it is something that can definitely stimulate and and help the plant photosynthesize.
1: (music) Please follow the Biological Farming Roundtable podcast. Share it with your friends and networks. I'm Nicola Madig and I work at Nutrisoil, a liquid biological fertiliser made from a big worm farm whose purpose is to empower farmers to produce life-enriching food.